From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, it's the best of flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Today on the program, we're proud to present the latest episode of the Electronic Antifada podcast with host Nora Brails Friedman. And later in the show, we'll hear the terrible details of the murder of A.J. Owens through a closed door. All the straight ahead on the best of flashpoints. Stay tuned. You're listening to the best of flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up first on the program, the latest episode of the Electronic Intifada podcast. That Israeli testing of weapons, surveillance, spyware, so-called smart walls, all this technology, which obviously has massively improved in the digital age in the last two decades, is the vital insurance policy Israel needs. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Today, we're joined by journalist, filmmaker, and best-selling author, Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony's latest book is The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. It's a meticulously researched expose on how Israel tests weaponry and surveillance technology on, on Palestinians, perfecting what he calls the architecture of control. Anthony, it's so good to have you on the Electronic Intifada podcast and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm wrapped to be here. Oh, thanks for being here. Uh, let's dig right in. You write in the Palestine Laboratory, quote, Palestine is Israel's workshop where an occupied nation on its doorstep provides millions of subjugated people as a laboratory for the most precise and successful methods of domination. You talk about Israel's occupation and the, the requisite dehumanization of Palestinians as a marketing tool and its weapons and surveillance technology as Israel's uh, export assets. Can you give us an overview of why you wrote the book, uh, why now, and and what it reveals about Israel's placement in the global war industry? So I started visiting Israel and Palestine in 2005, and I have been going there every three or four years reporting from the West Bank and Gaza. And between 2016 and 2020, I was living there in East Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah with my partner, who was uh, working for an NGO. And... I think when I was there, I guess it was at the beginning of that, I'd already um, written the book Disaster Capitalism, which came out in 2015. That was a book essentially about people making money from misery, from war, from uh, mining, from the aid industry. I guess that was sort of in my mind. And one of the things that I found deeply frustrating and something that you guys have written about a lot is so much, though not all, but so much of the reporting from by Western journalists in Israel-Palestine is terrible. Um, it is clueless, it is lacking context. And often the weirdest part is when you speak to the journalists themselves, if you do face-to-face over a drink, over a meal, often what they'll tell you is quite different to what they're actually writing. That doesn't make them necessarily evil people, but for whatever reason, they're not often telling the full picture of what they're seeing on the ground in the West Bank or Gaza or even in Israel itself. And I guess I wanted to write a book that was not just the daily minutiae of the conflict, not to minimise that. There's an importance of people writing what's happening every day, who's being killed, who's being arrested. That's important. But something bigger, and obviously 
in the news at the time started to be around Pegasus, the spyware that is infecting phones all over the world. And I did some reporting at the time also about how the occupation's increasingly being privatised, that Israel itself is privatising the occupation, that more and more of the so-called services that are used to maintain the occupation are privatised. This is security, this is um, facial recognition technology that often appears at checkpoints where Palestinians go in and out to go to work or to see their family, whatever it may be. So I guess I was interested in trying to find a bigger narrative that not just the conflict itself. And I guess that led to years of reporting around partly understanding the history. Obviously, some other people had written in parts about Israel's deep connection to, for example, Latin and South American dictatorships in the 70s and 80s. There'd been some work about Israel's close alliance with apartheid South Africa, which I think is obviously was relevant back in the day. That regime ended in 94, but actually is very relevant today because I think the reason why that was so close still explains why Israel is the country that it is, this absolute obsession or fascination with ethno-nationalism. And I think it partly tied into probably, although I don't talk about this much in the book, Trump became president in the US. There was a real acceleration of many of the trends that were already happening in the US around, um, obviously, America's immigration policy was hardly fantastic before he came into power, but he was accelerating those those awful trends and, in fact, accelerating what was happening in Palestine too. Um, almost, you could argue, being far more honest about America's role in the Middle East rather than being duplicitous, which I would argue former presidents had been. And I think pushing a very proudly ethno-nationalist line in the US. We're a Christian nation, so the argument goes. And if you're not Christian, namely Muslim, or maybe even Jewish, you're not really a real American. That was, of course, on steroids in Israel-Palestine as well. So all these factors, I guess, were in my mind, and I thought I wanted to write a book that I didn't feel, though some other people have written certain articles and it's been one or two books around the issue. I'm not going to say I'm the first one. But I thought there was a need for a really timely book to explain how Israel's occupation is now being exported around the world. Uh, let's get into some of the ways in which Israel has designed and tested their weapons on Palestinians. Um, and of course, at the Electronic Intifada, we've covered this you know, multiple times over many, many years um, Palestinians as really the, you know, and the Gaza Strip, for example, as really the, the research and development wing um, of Israel's uh, weapons and, and surveillance industry. Um, in one chapter, you write, quote, killing or injuring Palestinians should be easy as ordering pizza. That was the logic behind an Israeli military designed app in 2020 that, that allowed a commander in the field to send details about a target on an electronic device to troops who would then quickly neutralize that Palestinian. The colonel working on the project, Oren Matzilach, uh, told, the Israel, told the Israel Defense website that the strike would be like, quote, ordering a book on Amazon or a pizza in a pizzeria using your smartphone. That's from a chapter in the Palestine Laboratory called Preventing an Outbreak of Peace. Um, and just last year, and, and you, you uh, referenced this, it was revealed that there is a checkpoint in Hebron in the southern occupied West Bank that now has a fully remote controlled weapon that can shoot stun grenades, tear gas and sponge tipped bullets at Palestinians. Can you talk about these new weapons and, and really how Israel tests these these uh, these weapons on Palestinians and then markets them to the arms industry. 
There are other countries that have used war zones or battle spaces as testing grounds. You know, the US used Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11 very effectively from its perspective. And you know, a lot of people have said in the last 20 years, well, those wars were a disaster. You and I will say that, and the Iraqis and Afghans would say that, and many logical sane people would say that. But actually, in the defence industries in the US, those wars were massively successful. There wasn't a failure there at all. In fact, there was huge success. Massive profits very rich. to the point. Yeah. Very rich, to the point where, where, the, where the US pulled out of Afghanistan in August 2021, and the Taliban, of course, took over again. Defence companies in the US were openly saying, where's our next war? Like, how are we going to manage this? And the war in Ukraine started. And I'm not saying that the war started because of the defence companies, not at all. But you have articles now in the New York Times, just in fact this week, saying that a lot of US um, technology, weapons and surveillance is being tested in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, will then be spread around the world. So I mention all that because... Um, that's relevant. There are a number of states that are doing that. However, Israel has a very unique situation. There's an endless occupation essentially down the road or in their own territory. There are roughly five, five and a half million Palestinians under occupation, the West Bank and Gaza, of course, also East Jerusalem. And there is global impunity. And impunity is so central to that, right, that Israel essentially can do what it wants. And Israel has sold itself as the master of the so-called war on terror. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book, Nora, is that after 9-11, the US and much of the West sort of took on this whole language and behaviour around a war on terror, going after terrorists, blowing up terrorist infrastructure, all the rhetoric that viewers will know. But Israel had been doing that for decades before. And I say this in the book that so much of what I saw after 9-11 with the US and other countries, UK, Australia, my birth country, was copied from the Israeli playbook, mostly in Lebanon, particularly. If you look at so much what Israel was saying in Lebanon 1982, which was really in any logical way a complete disaster for Israel, really. However, they were monetizing that around the world by saying to nations, at that point, Latin and South America, we are masters of counterinsurgency. We can teach you how to deal with your own problem, so to speak. And... A lot of Latin American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Colombia, were desperate for Israeli advice. And you had in that, in that period during the Reagan era, lots of Israeli officials, private Israeli companies going to these countries, training, arming and working with death squads, with death squads, openly. And obviously they weren't necessarily... Um, doing this in the you know in front of a camera or in front of the media but it was even being reported a bit at the time i have some quotes from newspapers from back in the day so this so-called laboratory has been there from the beginning obviously this was happening from 1948 but it massively was on steroids after 67 when by the early 80s the occupation had been going for 15 or so years and there already had been an awareness i think in parts of israel at least the so-called smarter Israeli Jews who were saying, we know a lot of the world doesn't like what we're doing here. They don't approve of this occupation. However, firstly, most of the world didn't say much about it or against it, so that was only really rhetorical. And secondly, and I, I think this was the case then and even more now, 
that Israeli testing of weapons, surveillance, spyware, so-called smart walls, all this technology, which obviously has massively improved in the digital age in the last two decades, is the vital insurance policy Israel needs. What I mean by that is that, yes, when you look at most of the UN votes that happen every few months, the vast bulk of the world's on one side, and the other side is usually Israel, US, Australia, Micronesia, Palau, and Nauru. Like they're normally, so on the face of it, you might say, yeah, but the world's against Israel. No, that's actually a, a misunderstanding. I mean, yes, on one hand, if you look at that UN vote, Israel's very isolated. Or of course, they've got America as their big daddy friend to protect them in the UN. But selling all these weapons and tools and technologies, in my research, at least 130 countries around the world, which is the majority of the world, to some extent, insulates Israel from real serious criticism. Now, could that change in time? Could a nation that buys, say, spyware turn against Israel? Of course, it's possible and it has happened. But in general, I think so many of these nations that are buying a range of technology, which is openly promoted as battle-tested, I mean, I didn't include pictures in the book, but people can Google this, that you have after, for example, the... Gaza, um, you know, great march of return in 2018. Of course, Israel killed many, many Palestinians, injured many, many more. And there were certain tools and technologies that Israel was using, um, including something called, for example, the Sea of Tears, which essentially was a drone that dropped tear gas on people. And that wasn't itself killing people. It injured people in the process, both journalists and also Palestinians in Gaza. That was then seen and promoted by Israeli companies as an amazingly effective tool, I use them, I mean, I use that term loosely, for crowd control around the world. And those drones are now sold globally. So again, in that case, this weapon really, again, didn't kill people, but it injured people. And obviously, you know, as, as tear gas does, was seen as an effective form of, so to speak, counterinsurgency. That's one example. And I mean, obviously there are so many more in the book, it's hard to know where to begin. But this, I think, is one key example of how Israel almost gives itself an insurance policy against potential political headwinds that might come against it at some point. Now, at the moment, I would say Israel, although I think there's a lot of profound insecurity within the Israeli Jewish state, and I would argue in the Jewish diaspora for a range of reasons, which on the face of it might seem weird, they're incredibly powerful, they have the friends that they need, no one's really stopping them to do it. But I do think there's actually quite a lot of insecurity around their position in the world and the fact that there's a growing movement of people in the US and elsewhere that don't accept Israel's right to exist, all those kinds of issues. And yet I think overall that defence industry, which is growing, both weapons in a traditional sense, missile defence shields, spyware, etc., is surging. It's absolutely surging. And I think Israel would feel rightly, frankly, that in the short to medium term, they have made the right kind of, I use the term friends very loosely, because all these nations are so desperate, not just for the tools and technologies, but also the maintenance of those tools and technologies ongoing. Right. And, and you get into that, um, in, in, in your book, uh, you know, about this kind of other, 
other nations, other governments um, looking at how Israel is um, administering the occupation, how it's growing its its arms and surveillance industries, um, and how it's able to enact this incredibly oppressive, you know, matrix of control on Palestinians. Um, there is, I, you know, you mentioned uh, Central America. Uh, you, you talked about um, Guatemala uh, in the 1980s, where Israel's so-called uh, defense innovations helped regimes like the Rios Mont uh, government uh, commit massacres against indigenous populations. Genocide. Um, gen- genocide. Yes. I mean, that regime was, it was like 75,000 people. Right. Exactly. It's absolute ethnic cleansing. Mm. Um you wrote, uh, quote, CBS Evening News with Dan Rather explained in 1983 that Israel's prowess in Guatemala was tried and tested on the West Bank and Gaza designed simply to beat the guerrilla. Um, and, and you add that one Israeli advisor in Guatemala uh, had clearly taken the Israeli government's message to heart. He said, quote, I don't care what the Gentiles do with the arms. The main thing is that the Jews profit. Um, so can you talk a bit about like, you know, part of Israel's brand strategy is to, on the one hand, portray itself as this, you know, moral democracy, this, you know, the the so-called light unto nations cliche. And on the other hand, as you say, export its tactics of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Um, this is, of course, you know, not new to anyone who's studied European, you know, settler colonial uh, and imperialist tactics. But with Israel, there's also this overt business enterprise um and 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 you have this this quote that i think really kind of distills you know what 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 it's all about you say that the palestine laboratory can only thrive if enough nations believe in its underlying premise um can you talk about that a bit and how other countries are are looking at israel's quest for ethno-nationalism um and and you know, and and how it's bearing out. You know, one of the things I try to separate in the book is there are some nations that simply want to buy great surveillance technology or weapons to oppress their own people. So, for example, Mexico in the last 15 years has become Israel's biggest buyer of spyware. This is both from previous governments and the current government. I mean, the current government denies it, but it's a lie. They are still using it against dissidents and human rights workers. They love... Israeli spyware, particularly Pegasus, but others as well. So when a country like Mexico is buying that technology, I don't think Mexico is looking to become an ethno-nationalist state. They're doing it because they love the technology and it serves their purposes. It's different, though, when it comes to places like Hungary or India. And I talk a lot about India in the book because India is now the world's biggest population. It just overtook China this year. It's got 1.4 to 1.5 billion people. It is the self-described world's biggest democracy, although I would seriously question that. It is massively good friends now with the West, uh, the US, Australia. In fact, um, Narendra Modi is in Australia right now as we record this interview, being fated by much of the media and our government, disgracefully. So, but what India is doing in India is, since Modi came into power in 2014, is... Remarkably disturbing. I won't go into the history right now, but in short, wanting to create a Hindu fundamentalist state where the roughly 200 million Muslims are discriminated against, there are pogroms against Muslims, 
there's legal and racial discrimination against them. And one of the things that they're trying to do in Kashmir, which obviously is a Muslim majority part of India, is do something very similar to what Israel's doing in the West Bank to the point where in the last few years, I have these quotes in the book, you have Indian officials openly praising what Israel's doing in the West Bank, saying two things. One, we want to do something similar in Kashmir, namely bringing in huge amounts of Hindus to dilute the Muslim population up there and settle and build settlements, essentially. But secondly, Israel's done it and gotten away with it. I mean, they openly say that. It's possible to be done. Maybe the world doesn't like it and they might put out the occasional terse press release, but you know what? No one's going to stop us. And Israel would say, you're absolutely right. No one's stopping us. Now, I'm not saying in the book that India is doing all this because of Israel. That's obviously not true. But there is an ideological alignment. Modi and Netanyahu are best friends. You know, there are some viewers may have remembered some of these images of them splashing around on a beach with their shoes and socks off, you know, as best friends. I mean, it's sort of crazy in a way, but also not. I mean, look at Netanyahu and Orban in Hungary, very similar. An alignment around ethno-nationalism. And one of the things that really worries me, and you asked before, Nora, why I wrote the book, and I guess I touch on this in the book here and there, I have a fear that this century will be one that more and more nations move towards an ethno-nationalist agenda. This is not just being led by leaders. I mean, not every Indian, 1.4 billion people are all robots. There's obviously a sizable percentage of Indians, including, as I said, Modi's in Australia as we speak now. Huge numbers of Indian diaspora love Modi, love him, admire him, think he's doing an amazing job. So it's not just kind of Modi dragging people by the neck towards this agenda. There's a lot of support for it within India and opposition too, but not, not nearly enough. And India and Israel have this incredibly close alliance. They're, India is one of the biggest purchasers of Israeli arms. They have a lot of in, um, huge, I interviewed these people, and one person in the book, but there are many others. Um, India is purchasing a lot of Israeli spyware, going after dissidents, human rights workers, critical lawyers, etc. So to me, this is really about Israel trying to promote its own I guess, not just agenda, but its own makeup to a global audience and saying, this is the reason why you should follow us. It's successful. It works. And I just want one final point, and I mentioned this throughout the book, that there's a reason why, particularly in the last five to 10 years, so much of the global far right, who also want to create ethno-nationalist states in their own territory, obviously in their case, it'd be Christian, deeply admire Israel. There's a reason for that, right? And Electronic Intifada has definitely covered some of this very well, that you often go to these rallies and they're waving the Israeli flag. Now, traditionally, those yeah. groups don't like Jews. They're anti-Semitic. <laughs> they're often neo-Nazis. So you might say, sorry, what the hell is going on here? It actually makes perfect sense because Netanyahu, and again, I don't want to focus on one level too much. I think most of the Western press overly focuses on him. He's a terrible leader and a monster and all that is true. But the problem in Israel is far, far greater, as people will know, than Netanyahu. He could fall as prime minister tomorrow. These problems ain't going to really change. But his government particularly has decided to be openly supportive of many far-right politicians and groups around the world. And in some ways, the vision makes sense from their perspective when the far-right says, we really admire Israel's almost build a Jewish supremacist state 
no one's going to stop us. We also, I mean, I remember I have a quote in the book of Richard Spencer. This right. You don't hear so much about Spencer anymore, thankfully, but he was an alt-right leader, so yeah. to speak, right, at the beginning of the Trump piece. He's still around. I still see him on Twitter, sadly. But he was saying, I'm a white Zionist. I'm a white, I love what Israel's doing. Yeah. And that is really such an important understanding because there are parts of the world where the far right is growing in your country, in my country and elsewhere. Groups that traditionally hated Jews increasingly don't really, I think, frankly, like Jews, but somehow like this stereotypical view of the tough racist Israeli soldier or Israeli state projecting its power on the world and saying, we're going to be a proud Jewish supremacist state and you're not going to stop us. And these people also say, we we want to create a Christian Christian ethno-nationalist state in America, in wherever it may be. And those kinds of alliances, I think, are not just disturbing, but I think they need to be more discussed. And finally, finally, as a Jew, I say, how the hell is this not making the safety of all citizens worse, but including Jews? When you have an Israeli government, a self-described Jewish state, proudly cavorting with far-right groups who are openly anti-Semitic. I mean, it endangers all of us. I mean, citizens across the board, but including Jews. I think it's just, it needs to be called out far more than it has been, I think. Yeah, and it underlines, you know, the fact that Zionism is a political ideology um, of ethno-nationalism and supremacy um, and and you know, this like racist entitlement to someone else's land and property. Um, And so, of course, you know, like I'm just kind of struck by how, you know, because of the precedent that Israel has set, because of it, the the precedent of impunity and of alliance with the major Western powers, um, it, it, you know, the occupation itself you know, let alone the arms and the surveillance drones and the spyware, the occupation itself has been field tested and, you know, battle proven and it's able to be, you know, exported and, and marketed uh-huh. and and propagandized as part of that kind of bigger <laughs> spectrum um, uh-huh. of violence. Um, you, you mentioned uh, spyware. Um, you have a whole chapter on on the cell phones um, and how Israeli spyware corporations have you know exported its technology. You mentioned Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit more about NSO Group and and wow. Pegasus um, and and how that was designed and first used on Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza? So. NSO Group was founded by three Israeli men. They all were veterans of the IDF, which won't surprise people. And some of those people who were involved in the beginning were also veterans of Unit 8200. Some viewers will remember will know what that is. That's Israel's sort of elite intelligence unit in which their day-to-day job is to essentially surveil all Palestinians. And they take that experience and they then shift that into the private sector. And, in fact, there's a really clear encouragement within that organisation to support people's so-called ingenuity. I mean, that's how they frame it, the so-called startup nation ideology, which you guys have talked a lot about, which is not solely about weapons, but certainly it's a big part of it 
uh, weapons and spyware and a way to kind of promote Israel's apparent ingenuity in these sophisticated technologies. And NSO Group founded a number of years ago as a way to, at the time, to control BlackBerry phones. Remember those back in the day? Uh, now it's obviously not Blackberries that are in the museum now, but it was Blackberries <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. Relics. And interestingly, their first big client was Mexico. And Mexico was important because at the time the Mexican government was unleashing this catastrophic so-called war on drugs. They were trying to go after El Chapo, the drug cartel leader. And this is a sort of slight side note, and I mentioned this in the book, but some people will remember that weird, crazy trip that Sean Penn, the actor, took to Mexico to meet up with El Chapo and then did this weird Rolling Stone story and... Uh, it was all very bizarre as he is. But the reason I mention that is it seems very clear now that a key reason why the Mexican government in the end were able to find Del Chapo was partly because of Sean Penn and his visit and almost certainly either on his phone and or El Chapo's phone there was Pegasus had been installed so they knew where the hell he was. Now, whether Sean Penn knew this or not, I haven't asked him. He maybe wasn't aware. <laughs> He's I don't too know. busy it's a weird... hanging out with Zelensky. These days, so. Yeah, he is a <laughs> very curious man. Let's not get into that now. But yeah. um, indeed, but I only mention that because Mexico was a key client back then and it was justified as a so-called vital tool to fight a war on drugs. The country, of course, was and is engulfed in mass violence. and But Mexico was almost the key first test case and it was seen to be so-called successful. El Chapo was captured. He's now in a you know, maximum security jail in America and almost certainly will die there. And But what, of course, happens, as it always does, it bleeds into other parts of society. Police forces, military intelligence start wanting to use this unbelievably effective technology, spying on critics, dissidents, journalists, etc. The Mexico example was then used as a wonderful marketing tool for NSO to then sell it to many, many other countries. And no one really knows exactly how many countries, but it's dozens and dozens, probably under 100 but of the world, but frankly, we don't really know. I think the most accurate assessment was around 70 or 80 countries around the world. This is democracies and dictatorships, including the US, by the way. Yeah. And But I think also what I say in the book, which is important, that the issue here is not just NSO group. They're the most infamous. Pegasus is the most notorious spyware in the world. But there are many other companies in Israel doing exactly the same thing. And in fact, in the last few years, since there's been all these scandals around NSO Group, there has been a lot of other Israeli companies spring up doing exactly the same thing. And in fact, there was just a story recently in the Financial Times that the Mexican government, sorry, the Indian government is looking for alternatives to NSO Group and Pegasus, ideally Israeli, because there's so much bad press around NSO. I don't particularly know why the Indians would really care, but apparently they do. Um, and the one thing also that so much of the media coverage around this issue just drove me mental. Well, last few years, there's been some good reporting in various outlets around Pegasus. All that's true, The Guardian and others, Washington Post. There's been some good stuff about it, for sure, leaks and others. But one thing which is regularly either ignored or downplayed is it's almost framed like this is some rogue Israeli company. Right. Rogue Israeli company just kind of selling this crazy spyware and how do we stop this company? No, no, no. This is an arm of the Israeli state. 
it's a private company, yes. It, you know, it's a company as a board, and yeah, sure. But it's it's been used by Netanyahu, particularly in the Mossad, in the last ten years, as a key diplomatic tool to try to attract new friends. I mean, this is a key part of what the Israeli government viewed spyware as for, as a way to make new friends. So there's lots of evidence, and this is in the book, of going to places like Saudi Arabia or UAE or Morocco or other places, some of which didn't have official relations, some in fact still don't have official relations with Israel, and almost dangling this spyware over them and saying, if you want to be friends with us or be better friends with us or, or public friends with us, we will sell you the most popular spyware and effective spyware in the world. And it worked. I mean, the whole so-called Abraham Accords, you know, this Trump-era um, deal between Bahrain, UAE and Israel was always an arms deal. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly it was an arms deal, right? And there's now an attempt, obviously, to expand that to Saudi and others. And I know I noticed at the moment the Biden administration apparently is encouraging Israel and Saudi to become better friends and sort of join the Abraham Accords. Now, I don't know, obviously, if that's going to happen, but ultimately, if it does, it ain't going to be because either side particularly is fond of democracy, right? And all this issue, I guess, around spyware is important because what Israel has done in the last particularly 10 years is two things. One, as you said at the beginning, Nora, that it is increasingly used on Palestinians themselves in Palestine. A few years ago, there was reporting that a lot of the key al-Haq and others, their heads were spied on by Pegasus through, um, well, well, presumably by the Israeli government or Israeli intelligence. There's evidence that Israeli Jewish citizens are also being spied on, including some who have been protesting Netanyahu in the last few years. And it's sort of obvious to say this, but it's worth saying, the occupation always comes home. You know, and the US um, was fighting its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which seemed like you know, over there, so far away from the US, inevitably, not just because you know, police forces were buying all this military equipment that was then used on American streets, but you had all this inevitable blowback on American society, increased violence, increased veterans, trauma, all the obvious things that you would expect. It's the same in Israel, that one of the things that's been so unsurprising but depressing is all these massive Israeli protests in the last sort of five or six months against Netanyahu and his extreme government. Most of them, most of them meaning Israeli Jewish protesters, haven't really said or thought or cared about the fact that there's a military dictatorship down the road. There are a handful of Israeli Jewish protesters going every week, some of whom I know, I'm sure some viewers will know these people too, who are doing noble, amazing work, you know, the Israel, you know, having the Palestinian flag, talking about the occupation being completely, you know, unacceptable for any kind of real democracy moving forward. But ultimately, there seems to be no real focus on that by most people. They want to maintain a Jewish democracy. And the only way, you, inverted commas, maintain a Jewish democracy is repressing your Palestinian neighbours down the road. It's the only way it can work because they're not going to accept the so-called Jewish democracy, and frankly, why would they? So the proliferation of spyware, which sort of started with NSO Group, has now morphed and metastasized into these many, many other companies, most of which, in fact, all of which, there's no regulation on any of these industries. And that's this, this, of course, is the key point. No country wants to regulate it because every country wants to use it. Right. 
So on the one hand, that sounds a bit depressing because you think, well, how would that ever change? But I guess I'm sort of hoping, maybe foolishly, that all it would really take is, I mean, there's, for example, um, the EU at the moment is considering banning the um, presence of Israeli spyware companies on its territory. A lot of Israeli spyware companies are based in the EU, not just in Israel, particularly Cyprus and elsewhere. And whether that gets up, I don't know, because European countries also are a bit of a big fan of spyware, Greece being the most prominent example. They use spyware a lot on political opponents, on journalists, on dissidents, on cricket. And this is a so-called democracy in the heart of Europe, right? So, again, so many countries are so reliant on Israeli spyware and surveillance and repression tech that are they likely to be deeply critical of Israel beyond maybe the occasional press release? Not likely, no. So until that link is broken, economic boycotts and other ways, I don't think little. I don't think little will change because the occupation is seen as too financially beneficial, both to Israel itself, but also other nations that benefit from it too. Right. Uh, you have a, a chapter on social media and how Israel works to pressure Silicon Valley giants to censor Palestinians, especially at a time um, when is when Israel's brand is continuing to fail. As more and more people, especially you know the younger generation, is seeing Israel for what it really is, um, and of course this is sending Israel into an accelerated panic, doubling down on its propaganda, trying to criminalize the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement around the world. In the U.S., for example, we have dozens of uh, states passing these anti-BDS measures. Um, but you write, quote, without a huge international campaign of isolating Israel over its human rights abuses or some targeted court cases against Israeli weapons firms that sell equipment to repressive states, the industry will continue to thrive. Anthony, can you talk about the resistance to Israel and its industries of surveillance, uh, war and, and violent ethno-nationalism and, and what you hope your book can teach us about the future for Palestine? Well, in some ways, what I see happening in Palestine itself with so many Palestinians using and expressing and visualising their experience is actually revolutionary. What I mean by that is that, yes, I go into detail in the book of Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all the obvious social media companies being massively pressured by Israel to either censor Palestinian words or images or shadow ban them and arrange different and that's often successful so to speak they are being demoted disappeared invisibilized is that a word but people know what i mean that's happening but to me it almost feels like a, a real futility mm -hmm. because i do i mean not i mean israel of course probably wouldn't see it that way they see it as a you know noble way to get their message out to the world but I think a key reason why in the last 20 years, so many, and even more so in the last five or 10 years, why a lot of Western countries in public opinion polls, there is a real noticeable shift in how people feel about this issue. Now, you don't see much evidence of that at the top elite political levels. It's not really impacting Joe Biden's policies or the British government's policies or my country, Australia's policies. But I'm sure some viewers will be aware this is the first year then a majority of Democratic voters said that they're more sympathetic to uh, Palestinians and Israelis. 
There was an amazing poll of Jewish Americans a few years ago when a quarter of them said that they thought Israel was an apartheid state, a quarter thought Israel was committing ethnic cleansing. Now, all this is obviously on one level hard to say exactly why these views are changing, but to me, seeing Palestinians narrate their own lives is a key part of this. I don't think people's views are shifting or evolving or, in my view, maturing because of what they're reading selling the New York Times. Like, yes, those papers do now and then have the occasional different perspective. Yes, they do sometimes have Palestinians, thank God, now and then. And some of the reporting is a bit better now and then. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think it is because of so-called alternative media or social media. So this is happening in spite of mainstream media, not because of it. And so that does give me hope in a way. Now, how that translates into any political real movement, political pressure is obviously up to activists and others to to work out. And I'm often often very disappointed with some of the members of Congress who at least now and then mouth some criticism. I mean, it's better than it was back in the day, namely five, ten years ago. It's still pretty weak. Uh, and I'll say even someone like a Bernie Sanders is still, I mean... <laughs> I guess in the US political context, he's framed on this issue as a radical, but he's obviously very far from that. You know, even talking about maybe we should condition military aid. Okay, I mean, yes, great, but how much <laughs> worse does it need to get? Yeah, it's recycled liberal Zionist talking points that have always been there. Just yeah. And absolutely. I think Bernie probably has those kind of views. I mean, to yeah. some extent. I mean, I think he's probably been pushed a bit in the last five or ten years in a bit better direction but nonetheless yeah still pretty weak yeah look there are how many now in congress five ten mostly all democrats who are i mean pretty weak but better than existed before rashida talib i think ilhan omar these people are i think are contributing to a change in conversation i wish their policies were stronger don't get me wrong but i think it's not just what (laughs) they're saying in Congress, but it is also what they're just saying in general. It's about how they're expressing it. And the fact that they do now and then get a platform on mainstream media. They're not just talking to the alternative press, not that there's anything wrong with the alternative press, but they are. I mean, I just saw last week MSNBC had Rashida Tlaib on for 10 minutes talking about the Nakba and ethnic cleansing. Now, that seems to be not unimportant. I mean, that to me, you know, how does that impact people's views on the issue? It's hard to say, but I do think that giving those kinds of views and airing in a wide mainstream platform does matter. I do. Now, obviously that has to be parts of the mainstream media which are open to it. There was on, um, but so I think that's encouraging. I do think parts of, I think the pushback against parts of BDS, pushback meaning what you said, that there's legislation in various parts of the US, um, various other countries are pushing for it. It's basically outlawed in Germany. It's seemingly illegal to even literally protest for Palestinian rights in Germany. I have a section in my book about this. I mean, I'm a German citizen as well. I'm an Australian and a German citizen. And, I mean, I obviously I understand the so-called reasons, in inverted commas, why Germany says they're doing it, but it's absolutely a gross historical travesty that somehow being in inverted commas pro-Israel means that you support the most extreme forms of Israeli nationalism along with censoring any kind of critical views. And I have German friends who say to me that the atmosphere here uh, is really 
toxic on this issue. I mean, what's so weird in Germany, this is an aside, is that even parts of the so-called German left, parts of the left are very pro-Israel. It's a very it's a, anyway, it's a very weird situation over there. But I say that, that I think there is a growing civil society resistance and move to challenge Israel. In the US particularly, in the UK, in parts of Europe, the question is, does the rise of also a more far-right movement evangelicals and others who are very pro-Israel, because Israel just finally seems to be saying in the last five years, you know what, if you liberal American Jews don't like us anymore, we don't really care. I mean, you were they were the backbone, frankly, of diaspora support for decades. But more and more I hear Israeli far-right politicians saying, you don't like us? So what? We'll move to evangelicals or the Orthodox. Right. And I was just, just reading, in fact, the last few days that by apparently 2065, which is a while away, but not that long away, Israeli demographer was saying that by then, pretty much a majority of Israeli Jewish citizens will be Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox. So the so-called, not that I'm saying liberal Zionists have done very much for freeing Palestinians at all, liberating this issue. But when that becomes a potential reality and not that far away, and I'm generalizing here, but mostly fairly pro-Israel and very supportive of what Israel's doing, those orthodox groups there are some anti-zionists but mostly quite supportive of israel and its policies as is the case with south africa back in the day nora without outside pressure this issue is not going to change we can't wait for israeli jews to wake up one day and go gee this occupation is pretty awful it ain't going to happen outside pressure and boycotts is part of that hugely part of it and i'm hoping that there is some states that bravely at least say as a public policy, um, if they're not going to do full economic boycotts, at least military boycotts, or at least some kind of tangible policy beyond just rhetoric. Because I feel that the fear that I have, and I'm not alone in this, is that Israel is moving closer and closer to a second Nakba. I mean, they're openly, and I say they, there are key Israeli ministers, as I know, some of you as of EI will know, who openly talk about it. There's a the most recent public opinion poll found a sizable minority of Israeli Jews advocating ethnic cleansing. And, you know, years ago I would have said, oh, the world's not going to accept that. Now my view has shifted. I think the EU will release a terse press release. They tut-tut Israel. The Arab countries will express outrage, but actually are going to be not that unhappy about it because they hate Palestinians. I'm talking about Arab leaders here. It will require bribery of Jordan, Egypt, and Lebanon to maybe take in these Palestinian refugees. And the idea that people sort of say, well, how would that happen? Well, it's obviously hard to imagine exactly the how that would work, but there's some war, there's some horrific uprising, hard to imagine exactly. And then Israel is given, inverted commas, a justification to massively remove and almost finish, so to speak, as some Israeli politicians say, what happened in 48. Now, that sounds very apocalyptic, but I think unless people are aware of where this potentially is going, and this is not just Netanyahu's government, by the way, this is people much more across the political spectrum, then... Without knowing that, and I think those views need to be heard in much more American mainstream media and mainstream political elite culture that says this is where Israel is potentially going. What are you going to do about it? Issuing an occasional terse press release and saying, 
you know, Israel really shouldn't expand settlements, ain't going to cut it anymore. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Or shouldn't. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's uh, Anthony Lowenstein. His new book is called The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. It's out now from Verso Press. We'll have uh, links to uh, the publishing website and um, some of your most recent articles. I know you wrote um, something on this topic of exporting um, the weapons of uh, Israeli weapons technology um, in the New York Times uh, about a year or so ago. So we'll have a link no, to that, that as no, well. No, that was, let me correct you, that was the New York Review of Books. Let me ah, just correct you. much better. Times. Yes. No, yes, well, the New York Times, yes. I mean, if they want to publish it on this, I, I'm, <laughs> right I'm <on>. available. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the call. Yeah, exactly. But, uh... we'll, we'll be waiting for that one. But the New York <laughs> Review of Books, at least. Um, yes. And, uh, and we'll, so we'll put links to that and um, much more on the podcast post that accompanies this episode. Anthony, again, congratulations on the book. Thank, Thank you so you. much for your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast.
You're listening to the best of Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up next on the program, Flashpoints contributor Wendy Lieberman brings us the story of the murder of A.J. Owens. Listen to this. Joining us uh, to talk about uh, the latest uh, Stand Your Ground, Justify. On their impulses, because they have no reason to think that there's going to be recourse. Um, it's amazing that how powerful uh, stand stand your ground is, and how it is enforced or um, you know ensured by local law enforcement. They take it very seriously, and this in uh, really the media has been responsible for this playing up this. Oh, there was an ongoing feud between the families. But as you say, anybody who knows anything about what's been going on there for some time understand that you had a very uh, crazy person in Susan Lorenz, what is it, Lorenz's, um, who uh, can easily, easily, easily be considered a um, domestic terrorist. And you, got, you can't get the police to come arrest her. You know, that, that would mean, I guess, that the... The uh, the children, the, the the surviving children, are still in uh, jeopardy to be killed by the same person that killed their mom. Yeah, or or someone maybe that that knows her and seeks revenge. I mean, it could turn into a feud. I mean, that's that's the thing where it's like they they take the effect as if it is the cause. And then you know, I'm I'm thinking about like the potential backlash because we just had this happen to Ralph Yarl. I mean, not long ago was um, Lashawn Thompson who was in um, pretrial detention, eaten alive by bedbugs. And I mean, like it, it's just this just absurdity um one after another like you say say their names the list is too long your show's not long enough there's not enough time to say all their names and so you know i'm and i'm seeing like just the the backlash you know it's like before like cities are inflamed you know it's like people just need to come together like to organize against these fascists and like because they're such a minority like I, i still have faith that like floridians and americans are good people that um it that they don't have it in them to try to rise to power they don't have that urge to suppress other people so the the small minority of psychopaths that do find they break the rules and they find a way to take hold of the power while everyone else isn't really paying as much attention or just not realizing it and so we just we just need to like hopefully take this heartbreak and frustration and you know, not not even like love the terrorists like in that sense, but just come together to organize to drive them back into their like demonic holes that they came from. I mean, because when I when I see this, like when I picture the potential backlash from this and the uprising, which is totally justifiable. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be a black child in the country right now, where not only are you are you aware of your own mortality coming into this world that the planet is on fire and there might not be a habitable place to live in a few years, but you might not even make it to the age to vote. That's just what is internalized. That's what, like they have to learn that from the earliest age. And so this these uprisings that would would be the natural effect. That's just going to justify more militarization of the police. You know, to give them more toys, to to just ultimately the minority suppressing in, in such a brutal, violent way. So I just, I really hope, like, I, I, I keep thinking of um, Martin Luther King talking about how darkness can't drive out darkness. Um, you know, only love can conquer hate. And it's like, it's really easy for me to be like, sitting here as a white woman saying these things. 
but I, I, it just, it, it, I mean, and it, again, it's hard to say, but to any like black people listening right now, like this is gut wrenching on every level to so many people. And I just, I, I just hope that there's a way out of this. And I feel like the more anger and frustration there is like the, the deeper we're going to drive ourselves and just not give them the fuel that they want, you know? We're going to watch it closely. Really thank you for uh, reporting this for us, uh, Wendy. We've been speaking with Wendy Lederman. She, by the way, is an environmental and social justice advocate, if you can't tell, founder, administrator of Fort Lauderdale Water Crisis Community Forum, and a lot of other things, uh, fights for your vote as well. Wendy, thanks for laying this out for us and for being our Florida correspondent. We're going to have to keep an eye on your governor there. We're out of time now, but we'll be back to you soon. Thank All right, um, visit justiceforajowens.org and call state attorney Bill Gladson and ask for murder charges, please. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.